Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage or in these troubled times over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. So here we are, and this month we are exploring Paula Vogel's The Miniola Twins. Like so much of Vogel's work, the Mineola Twins is a humorous, lighthearted jaunt through very dark and intense subject matter. And we have some great guests on today. We have Luann Schooler, who, if you live in the Portland area and part of the rather insular Portland theater scene, you know Luann as the prize dramaturg of Artist Rep Theater. Um, what I did not know was that Luann is also, or was also, an actor way back in the day, and that she originated the roles of Myrna and Myra in the Mineola Twins in its uh, maiden voyage 25 years ago in Juneau, Alaska. Uh, so we'll be talking to her. I'll we'll be talking to Jeanette Yu, um, a well-renowned lighting designer who also brings a lot of other gifts and skill sets to the table, which is good because she was in for a whole new ball of wax with this production of the Mineola Twins. And then finally, we'll be talking to Artistic Director of Profile Theater and Director of the Mineola Twins, Josh Hett. So it's going to be a fun ride through some great interviews, super interesting people all around. Um, so sit back, relax, and welcome to Satellite. First up, we will have Luann Schooler. Well, Luann, thank you so much for making this time for me. Of course. It's, it's delightful. For, for appearing on our podcast, Satellite. <laughs> um, so, the Mineola Twins. And I can't even tell you how cool I think it is that you originated this part well, in Alaska. Love, yeah. How many years ago? Uh, many years ago, I, I think it's about twenty-five years ago because it was nineteen ninety-six. Wow, that's awesome. Ninety-six. Um, yeah, a long time ago. So it was really fun to see the show again and and remember it because, of course, I haven't thought about it particularly, you know, in years. So it was really fun to watch. Well, you know, and it's it's super interesting because uh, for me personally. Because uh, being the ignorant slob that I am, I didn't know that you were an actor before. I, you know, just knew you well, as the most well-known dramaturg I know of in the Portland theater scene. Um, I say that, I guess, from my personal experience. You're the one I know the best. Um, well, I, I, I think it does not make you an ignorant slob. I don't know why you would know that 25 years ago I was an actor. So you're off the hook <laughs> on that one. Thank you. Thank you for throwing me a bone. Uh, and in Alaska, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, it was at Perseverance Theater, which is in Juneau, Alaska. And um, Perseverance Theater was a really uh, an, a very ambitious little theater and on the edge of nowhere. 
And it was started by Molly Smith, who went from Perseverance to be the artistic director at the arena stage. Um, no kidding. Yeah. And and Molly came back from, I think she went to the uh, American University. And I think she and Paula were classmates at American University. And so because Perseverance was this really ambitious, small, quirky theater on the edge of nowhere, we were able to get playwrights like a young Paula Vogel, young M. Bogart, these people who could come and try things out, resting no assured that the New York Times was not going to send a critic. Right. So we were able to, to create a bunch of new material with some pretty high people who became very high profile. And Mineola Twins was one. We also did Paul's. We didn't premiere it, but we did, I think, the last workshop production of Baltimore Waltz. Um, we did some oh. readings of How I Learned to Drive. Um, so it All was, because it was you're fun. on the edge of nowhere. Yes, yes, because we were in this little town of you know, less than 30,000, less than 3,000 people. Um, and it was safe. And, and Molly was a terrific artistic director and was able to persuade people to come. She sounds like a fireball. Yeah. yeah. What was her last name again? Molly Smith. That's hard to remember. Molly <laughs> Smith. Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you meet Paula Vogel at this time, 25 years ago? Oh yeah. Pa Paula was in rehearsals with us. Um, Sweet. For, for all of Mineola Twins, and she was doing some rewrites. The play was in really good condition by the time we started rehearsals on it. But she was with us and doing cuts and rewrites and small changes, large changes, all of that. So you didn't have a brush with fame. You rolled up your sleeves and got dirty with fame. Yeah. Yeah. How was she to work with? She's lovely. She's a, an incredible she has an incredible warmth about her and she's also really curious person. So she was very, very interested to see how other people would play with her work. Um, and, and she's also incredibly smart because, you know, this play, I don't know how much, how much you've looked into sort of the history of this play, but it was written in the mid to, early to mid nineties when it was, that's when Newt Gingrich had, you know, the Republican Revolution and the contract with America. And there was this big backlash against feminism. And Chessie Helms and Jerry Falwell were in power at the time. So that's kind of the stew that Paula was writing this play during. Man, all that seems woefully familiar. Yes. Yes, it does, doesn't it? I was, I was actually uh, totally surprised at how topical the play was still. I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, a and especially. Yeah. Yeah. And especially with like the January 6th uh, insurrection um, and watching like the one, the, the conservative characters move to more radical mm -hmm. uh, behavior and action. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, it's just very prescient. That's all, yeah. you know? And I'm curious, like, what was your emotional response? What was uh, Juno's emotional response to this play when they first came into contact with it? Uh, as I recall, and, you know, this was 25 years ago, 
it it, it is such a funny play live um, because it's, it's sort of like an extended Carol Burnett sketch. And so sure it is. the comedy yeah. of it really, people delighted in that and it was really fun. And then in addition to being really fun and wacky, it was also like, oh yeah, I recognize these people from from political life. I recognize, you know, that's my weird cousin up there. Um, so it, it, it was really well received. And I just remember as an actor, what a sort of huge mountain it was to climb. I, I give Miriam so much credit for stepping in, as I understand it, you know, right at the beginning of tech for, for this performance <laughs> yeah. and to, to get hold of, of those two roles in that amount of time with all of the additional tech and working in a different medium and all of that. She was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She lit it up. Yeah. Well, she's really uh, luminescent. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I, I, you know, and because, you know, she's in every freaking scene, it's totally necessary. (laughs) You need to have a luminescent actor. Yeah. Which 25 years ago, Luann, was you? (laughs) (laughs) That's an awesome compliment. Yeah. Yeah, what was, was it like fun. building th- those two roles? It was so fun. It was so fun because it's it's a play that can really take. Um, you had to be re- you have to be really broad and really specific at the same time, and and the comedy is really precise. Even though it's sort of goofy and wild, it's actually Paula's laid she's written it in such a precise way so there's like there are steps to making the laugh land so it was yeah it was such it was like a master class in comedy because paula could just go no you need to you need to hit this and this and then you will land this um so it was it was a wonderful experience and just it was just fun because taking on these two wildly different characters at the same time. That's a great meal. Right. Absolutely. Um, Somebody was just telling me that, uh, you know, in Arkansas, they have some case that they're trying to get to take the Supreme Court that they want to use to repeal abortion rights. And I'm just wondering, like, uh, what do you think is different about the the message the play was sending 25 years ago versus the message is sending now. And is there any difference? I don't know that it is different. You know, 25 years ago in the sort of late eighties and early nineties, it felt like there was a lot of progress on in feminism. Um, Sort of like, you know, three years ago, it felt like there was huge progress because of the me too movement but then comes the backlash. Um, so it, it feels in many ways like the politics are exactly the same. We're just worse. Um, right. You know. well, exactly the same, only we're less civilized now. Yes, yes. Now we are free to be just horrible, horrible people. I mean, at least in the, in the 90s, even, the, even sort of the in talk radio it was not nearly as as 
the truth still mattered. You know, people could try to try yeah. to twist the truth, right. but there was an agreement right. that there was such a thing as truth. So, I, I think about that difference too. Sometimes I'm like, you know, it's not like people didn't lie back then, but you know, there was such a thing as reality. Yes. You know, now now people just mix stuff up out of whole cloth. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, it, we've really escalated things, you know, and I think Paula's choice to put this, these two viewpoints in these twin sisters, you know, these sisters who twins ought to be close. They ought to find a way to get along. But when they can't, it's just such a battle. And it just feels like that is, that's kind of America right there is this, you know, one hyperpartisan twin and the other hyperpartisan twin. And there's just no way they can figure out how to get it together. You know, so, so that that's sort of the last scene um, or the, the possible killing in the Planned Parenthood thing is scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, she could have made them just sisters, but she made them twins. Why do you think that is? I think because twins are even closer than sisters. Um, and I think it is it is one of the funniest sight gags, I think, on stage that one twin is flat chested and one twin is big breasted and the, the flat chested disguises herself for the bank robbery by stuffing her bra. I mean, that is funny. <laughs> yeah. And you know, so much of what you say is true. And I, I find it cause I think of, I guess it's my own thing. I think of Paula Vogel as this like serious playwright. Uh, but it's like every place she writes has, has like, a, you know, like the strong current of humor. Yeah. Um, and what she manages to do that is so, uh, uh, just so impressive is, um, she can make jokes and it doesn't lessen the gravity of the show or, you know, it doesn't lessen the gravity of what she's trying to say. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the impact and the efficacy um, of the moment of the themes that she's working with are still there. Yeah. You know, it's um, really terrific. So um, you originated this play 25 years ago and you just saw the profile production here in 2021. Was there anything that surprised you about the play? Anything that, uh, you have forgotten that this was there and you're like, oh my God, that's right. That was there, you know, um, or like, you know, how had your view of the play shifted at all? I, I think there was a lot that I was like, oh, I had forgotten about that. I had forgotten about this. I had forgotten about that. I had forgotten about how, I, I guess the scene that I had forgotten the most about was the scene with um, Myra in after she's she's robbed the bank and she's she's fleeing and she's she's going to she's fleeing the FBI um, and and the kind of depth of fear that she has about and and feeling mm. that oh I really I really screwed up this is terrible I'm going to you know no you can't come to Canada with me this is bad this is very very bad I just I had forgotten the depth that she actually goes to in that um so it was, you know, in some ways, it, 
25 years, it was almost like seeing a play that I had never seen before because it was, hmm. you know, so it was just, it was a fresh and beautiful production of it and, and so different. But then there would be moments where I was like, oh, I remember that moment. I remember rehearsing this moment and how hard we worked to get, you know, this thing to work. Um, so, yeah, it was really delightful to see it again after all this Right time. on. So... And to, and to go, oh, yeah, Paul is really smart. And this play actually really stands up. Because um, it's not one of the yep. plays that's done a lot. And I don't know why. Because it's so fun. Uh, watching it, it totally surprised me. I was like, I can't believe I've heard about this play. This play should be being done right now. And, I, you know, it is. We're doing it, you know. Um, but I'm surprised it doesn't have a bigger cultural footprint right now. Yeah. Because it's, it's talking about all the stuff we're going through right now, and it does it in, with humor. Yeah, yeah, and maybe maybe after the pandemic, it will it will find a sort of resurgence. But but you know, it's just one of the one of she's written a lot of plays, and they're they're all amazing in their own wor- way. But there's you know there's two or three that have really like captured everything. How I Learned to Drive is is a different level of brilliance. Um, so I think when people look to, to Paula Vogel, they, they mostly go there. So some of these little right. gems get overlooked. Yeah. And you feel like how I learned to drive, you know, that's legitimate. You know, it's, it, more attention should go to that play. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It is. Um, but as you say, this one is also a, a little gem. Oh, I was just going to say that, that, you know, also you throw like Civil War Christmas in there. And if you look at How I Learned to Drive, Civil War Christmas, and then this play, those are three such different pieces, and she just masters them all. Thanks a lot, Luann. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Let's take a quick break, and we will be back with Jeanette Yu. I'm Josie Seed, one of the mentors in Profile Theater's Community Profile by and for black women. Do you want to cultivate your own creative voice and use writing as a springboard for conversation and fellowship? Check out Community Profile, an affinity space exclusively for black women that offers community building through monthly writing workshops with award-winning writers and exceptional teachers. There is something undeniably powerful about exploring one's own creative voice in a dedicated affinity space just for us, by us. Due to COVID-19, we aren't meeting in person at this time, but we are meeting online and have found it to be a rich experience for participants. The program is 100% free and 0% pressure. You'll meet people like you of all ages and backgrounds who are also there to work on their craft, share their stories, listen to yours, and together find a little bit of wisdom, support, and love. For more information, go to our website profiletheater.org and click on the community profile tab and see why one recent participant called this program a life changer. And we are back with Jeanette Yu. Welcome, Jeanette Yu. Hello. Hey, we're so happy to have you on the satellite. Thank you for coming on. Um, well, first, let's just talk about you. Um when I first heard your name, I heard about you as a lighting designer. And mm-hmm. then when I looked up, looked you up 
online, it looked like that lighting designer was only the tip of the iceberg. So tell me about uh, what you do, how you define yourself as an artist and what kinds of different projects and skill sets do you have? Oh, yeah. Well, I would say that um, 80% of the time I'm a lighting designer. Um, my, um, I get my, and I, um, my background is a little weird. I got my degree, actually undergraduate degree in business administration accounting. <laughs> I actually work as an accountant for manufacturing processing for a couple of years. Um, I volunteer to do some theaters work. Uh, always know that I want to do behind the scene. Um, so eventually I sort of like tried my hands in different, different types of work and landed in wanting to do lighting design because um, I like the idea that lighting design just use the same few object material and just the combination of it to create new things. Uh, we're not always about building or buying, buying more stuff. We're always using the same kind of equipment. So that really, really, uh, uh, I was really interested in that approach. So then eventually I went back to um, grad school. I went to California Institutes of the Arts nice. um, and, and studied. And, and in Cal Arts, um, they are really just a theater design degree, not really specific to the discipline. So even though I'm primarily a lane designer, um, now, meanwhile, in my undergraduate, I did take some theater classes and I took some puppetry classes, actually, with um, uh, Miss Aurora Valentini in University of Washington. And Cal Arts also have a puppetry program at the time when I was there. But they do mostly contemporary and avant-garde and experimental puppetry. So, so while I was at school, I continued to sort of build being a lane designer. And then I'm also doing a puppetry work. Um, uh, and because Cal Arts is really uh, flexible, so you, you sort of like follow your interests and try many different things. So I was able to like build my own shows, um, like devise my own work with people, work with experimental animation, uh, animator, experimental composer. So I just have a broad spectrum of people I was exposed to. So that sort of continues after I graduate that I'm constantly interested in being working with a multi-dimensional group of uh, artists. Um, and, and while after I graduated is when projection design started becoming more prominent and I got really interested in the idea of projector also emit lights. So then I just started picking up projection design on my own. Uh, and then it sort of like rose into me now doing projection design also for theater. And so I would define myself as a um, theater designer and a generative artist where I also make my own work and using uh, contemporary aesthetic and technology together. That's what That's I awesome. define myself. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, you know... Um... I, I think so many theater artists, you know, I think because like because I was the same way, like, you know, just you start out in one discipline, but you're eventually going to wind up, you know, doing other things as well. Cause like I saw you, you had like installations and stuff like that that you've done as well. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I am very lucky. I feel like that um, that I haven't I haven't been pigeonholed into doing only one types of work. Right. So, like, I have done um, immersive and installation design. I have done uh, um, concerts. I have done musical. I've um, definitely done drama work. Uh, 
So, you know, and I just find it really interesting that every single time you do, you do a different genre of work, you just bring in references from all the other genre that you have worked at. So you really challenge each genre as you sure. bring in knowledge and experience from other work. Um, so that's what I really like about it. Fantastic. Um, yeah. um, so, and then you came on to the Mineola twins. Yes. Uh, so I, I can't help but think um, when I just, just when I heard uh, Josh's idea of what he thought this project might look like, I was like, Oh my gosh. Um, can you tell me about like how you approach this project, how it was different from the stuff that you normally do, how it was the same. Um, and what was really important for you to get across as a storyteller? Um, I think that what's the same is I always, the collaboration in the room, you know, the conversation of how to best tell the story, uh, um, and what's really different, and I think it's also like something that I really enjoyed, is that in this digital performance format, we, uh, I developed a much closer relationship with, with actors than I would normally be as a lighting huh. designer or projection designer. Um, because I like unlike costume designer who like have a much more personal one-on-one -on -one relationship because of the, the, the discipline. Like generally lighting and projection designer, we sit like on the other side of the stage. We don't walk on the stage during tech, um, you know, or if we do, it's very rare that happen. Um, we may talk to an actor, but it's usually very far away, you know. But in this case, because the actors are so integral in, in, in being able to set up their own lighting, set up their own green screen in order for me to do the work, I am constantly in, in conversation with them. Uh, and I just develop, I just feel like that it gives me an opportunity to be much more up close and personal with actors that normally I don't have. And that's the part that I really enjoy because it's like, it, it, uh, it really helps us uh, feed onto each, you know, feed into each other. It's sort of like, oh, I understand what what your your challenges is, and uh, let me and let me work with you on what I'm trying to accomplish. So that is very different. Um, uh, and and the approach is, I I'm fortunate enough that I've done a couple of these digital production prior to Josh contacting me. So the so the technology portion of it. I we sort of I got a I, it's not like a, um like a, my friend always said that it's not like building the airplane while also trying to fly it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so so that was a benefit. So when Josh yeah. like first approached me, it's really about like sort of like the nuts and bolts of how to do something. And so in that sense, I really brought that into the process. Then the rest of it is just really about, oh, okay, like Josh is interested in staging them this way. How can we um, make that uh, convincing? How can we tell the story that they're in a diner? How can we tell a story that they're lying in bed? You know, um, um, and, for, and also aesthetically, like making the choice to be like tongue and cheek about it, which is, I thought, I thought that it really helps. Like, you know, embracing that this is not quote unquote real. Right. Right. You know, and, but, but the, but the emotion and the, and the acting and the performance is, the authenticity is sure. in that. Sure. You know, and the environment, we can be tongue and cheek and fun about it. 
-hmm. It's also a great approach. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it quite like that. Like in in theater, which is what we normally do, uh, there's still always that thing that has to be done where we acknowledge that, you know, this is not real. You know, um, and and the audience has to be willing to come with us and, you know, uh, say, you know, Biff and Happy can't hear Willie and Linda downstairs when they're sitting right there in the same room, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, the audience is asked to make this, a, a similar journey with the Mineola twins, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Can you tell me about how um, how some of it just worked? Like, tech, like technically, how did it work? Like, I, there was stuff that was done that I actually did not know was possible. Like, when they were kissing, and uh, and it actually looked like one person was in front of the other one, like, be- between me and, and, and the other actor, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, how did they do that over Zoom? <laughs> well, I mean, fortunately, uh, because I was, uh, I, I, I was doing projection design before this, there's a piece of software called um, Isadora, which is a projection design software that allow you to put media into it. And by programming it into a sequence, you can create different kind of cues. And one of the things that it can work with is um, uh, green screening. So what we did was like every actors have a green screen and a set of lights that uh, give us uh, to light the green screen and them. And then what I, what I did is I, in Zoom, uh, using Isadora, I'm able to capture individual video feed. And so then I put the video feed into this program and then green screen, the, the benefit of the green screen is I, I can do a, um, a process called keying, which means that I make them into without a background. So I can lift their body independently, separate from the green screen background. And so then I can then place them, basically, you know, if you imagine your computer screen is a stage, I'm basically able to place them on my computer screen, however (laughs) way I want to do it. And, you know, and then apply like a common background behind them. So it looks like they were actually there. And then through another piece of software called Open Broadcast uh, uh, System, OBS, um, we can then stream it we can then like what like the term is like we push it so that we can push the composite image in onto onto the website so that allow people to see it that's the technical way of how it all happened that is fantastic <laughs> wow and I, and I tell you uh as soon as i hear it i'm like nah, that's not me i'm actually familiar with obs because we just did a um i, I also work with young people and we just did a project where we used obs to make the zoom look more interesting and theatrical and i just think you do a bang-up job on on this piece like i said there was there was stuff happening i was like i didn't even know i literally did not know that you could do that Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. it was it was, uh, it was awesome. And um, how did you and Josh come out with the uh, aesthetic that you came up with that was very kind of like Americana, I felt like? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is like the script. The script have very specific um, um, era. Um, oh, of course. You know, and but but the campiness of it is really grounded in this idea of like, we started out with the idea of like a 1950s, sort of sitcom because like because we're dealing with the 2d screen 
and um, and uh, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. know that we know that we're not creating real furniture, like or three dimensional. I mean, like theater never is real, but still, like in a normal set, you have like a couch that the uh, that the actor can physically sit on, which in this case is sort of like we have to we have to. Uh, uh, strategically put the chair in a way that lines up with the image. It looks like they're sitting by the table, that kind of stuff. So, so the aesthetic of it is like really tongue in cheek um, uh, to start out with. Uh, but then uh, we really wanted to have a lot of like historical um, uh, documents or footage to help people to understand that we are moving through error and time. Right. So that's what all those in the in interloop sort of in between clips I made all of them and find archival footages so that it really feels like we're moving through time. Um, and then eventually the idea is like as time goes on, it gets less and less tongue and cheek and more and more sort of aligned with reality in some right. way. And so that right. was like the 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 arc that we have talked about. Woof. And I'm thinking that this uh, the transition pieces then take an entirely different kind of software. Um, well, I I use basically uh, uh, editing software. I use Premiere to edit them into into a clip, and then and then I still feed through Isadora because Isadora can play video on its own. So it still feed through Isadora, and basically all the cues, like every changes that you see from scene to scene or zooming into the actors, um, all our all our individual trigger cues in Isadora. That uh, that Alan Klein, which is my amazing associate, um, uh, have it on his computer and programming it, and then and run them for the show. Woo! All of that sounds very complicated. <laughs> you know, well, the, the trick is to make something easy looking, even though right. it's complicated, right? Yeah. So, well, um, I thought you did a terrific job, and uh, and I want to um, thank you so much for your time and and coming on and talking to me uh, because a lot of what you and and Alan uh, Klein accomplished, like I said, to me felt like almost magical. I was like, you know, oh, um, so congratulations on your really uh, great work. And are you, uh, I suppose you're looking forward to getting back to live theater at some point. Oh, yes. I mean, there's nothing like live theater, right. you, know, uh, you know, and uh, I'm actually, you know, every day it seems a little closer and woozy. You know, I also, I do also think, though, that I think that I have this conversation with Jamie Ray, our line producer for the for the uh, show and also from uh, Profile, that I do somehow feel, though, that the digital platform has its place. Um, you know, would we be asking actors to set up green screen and lights and lots of no, obviously. That's not the that's not the that's not the goal. That's not going to that's because we just couldn't be in person. But I do think, think that the ability the, the accessibility is still a big benefit um to be put, to be doing offering this as an option. I also think that um uh it allows for also distant collaboration that you may not normally. I mean, a lot of artists in the world are limited by political reason, physical reason, uh, um, that they couldn't necessarily join a project. But this this way actually helped bridge that. So I think that there was still something there 
that I think that particularly theater like Profile, who is like really uh, forefront into pushing different types of work and exposing audience to different ways of like thinking about work and connecting with playwrights. I feel like that there was still a place for this kind of collaboration. Uh, and, and it wouldn't take away from the live performance because live performance would still always be the stand, the, 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 you know, the standard, the, the way that we you know, engage with theater. Um, right, right. Something mm-hmm. has been cracked open that is yet to be mined. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Jeanette Yu. Thank you. Um, and I hope we get to work with you again. Definitely. I love Profile. This is my second time. Uh, I love the team. But I think that Profile is, uh, is you guys really support the audience. Um, I always like feel taken care of being here. Um, and I like, and I like Portland. Hopefully I will physically be there next time. Right on. Right on. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Let's take another break and we'll be back with director and artistic director, Josh Hecht. Profile Theatre presents Paula Vogel's The Mineola Twins, a divinely funny comedy about America's culture wars from the 1950s to today. Well, you know, I mean, mom thinks that conservatives just go around blowing up abortion clinics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your mother and her imagination. She still works, I take it, for the Planned Parenthood in Nassau County? Yes, I'm afraid she does. I'm coming, Myrna. I'm coming to find you. The Mineola Twins, written by Paula Vogel and directed by Josh Hecht, is available to watch on demand from March 9th through March 21st for members and non-members at Profile Theatre on air. Learn more and tune in at ProfileTheater.org. So I am here with none other than Big Josh Hecht, artistic director extraordinaire and director of the Mineola Twins. Guilty. Josh, how are you this afternoon? I'm good. How are you this afternoon? (laughs) Uh, I'm feeling very tech savvy this afternoon, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Um, We have done a bang-up job at Profile Studios. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I want to talk to you a little bit about your show and um, about the playwright that you're working with. Profile has been working with Paula Vogel for the past year and a half. This is play number... Four. Play number four of hers that you have uh, we have worked on this year. Um, tell me a little. So you must love her. I do. Tell love me a little her. bit about Paula Vogel. Yeah, I think Paula Vogel is one of our most extraordinary living writers working today. I think she, some of her work is um, deeply emotional and really kind of raw. So I think about plays like Indecent or How I Learned to Drive. Um, some of her plays, also those two plays, really, um, you know, really play around with form in quite inventive ways. Um, so she really pushes the envelope in terms of what plays can do, what plays can look like. But I also think that, you know, no one, there's another vein of her writing that is really, really funny, like drop dead funny. And I think there's no one who marries a love of camp and slapstick and the ridiculous with some real heavy and deep sociopolitical content. Um and that she manages to do those things at the same time uh, makes her uh, 
quite unique, I think. And then two, as an educator, she has trained an entire generation of writers um, through her work at uh, Brown, heading their MFA program there, and also at Yale, where she headed the MFA program in total for about 30 years. And um, so, so many of our favorite writers, um, Lynn Nottage, of course, with whom she shares this season, but also other profile writers like Sarah Rule and Kiara Hudes and Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and um, really many, many, many of your favorite living writers have probably been trained by Paula. Right. Uh, you know, wow, it's it's so crazy that you mentioned uh, How I Learned to Drive. I wasn't even thinking about that play. That's a great play as well. Yeah. You know, and part of what I love about her is her lack of judgment. Hmm about her characters, you know, she's just really able to look at them honestly and uh, embrace all of their humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, the play you're directing right now, the the Mineola Twins, um, seems to have a lot of those qualities that you are talking about with the humor and the pathos, um, you know, and like we were talking about, and the, and the lack of judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what it's been like working on this project? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, this is a real slapstick, mistaken identity, doppelganger kind of play. Um, And she has a lot of fun with mistaken identity in this piece. Um, She writes at the very beginning of the script. She says, there are two ways to do this production. One, with good wigs. Two, with bad wigs. And personally, I prefer the second route. And, uh, and so that really gave us license to explore a kind of John Waters aesthetic, um, you know, where we really leaned into it being really kind of raw feeling and rough edges and um, terrible wigs that we bought for about $16 each that Sarah Gahagan just styled <laughs> the heck out of. <laughs> there may be a small hole in the ozone layer above Sarah's house because of the amount of <laughs> hairspray that she had to use, but they look kind of incredible. Um, so, you know, it's a, there's a lot of real silliness that we had fun with. Um, but then it's also about the culture wars in America and how those wars are played out across women's bodies um, for decades in the play from the 50s through the late 80s. But of course, you know, that that battle continues. Um, and so one of the of the twins is um, you know, much more um, kind of in touch with her sexuality and her own erotic life and pleasure. Um, and she becomes what we would today call a progressive. Um, and the other is much more um, uptight and um, plays by the rules. And she becomes, by the end of the play, a really rabid, conservative, reactionary talk show host. But of course, what what Paula is exploring is that both of them have a rich and robust sexual life. It's just that Myrna, the conservative twin, does everything in her power to repress it and suppress it and control it and control it in others, whereas Myra has a much more kind of integrated holistic um, relationship to herself. Yeah, certainly. Um, And do you think that plays into why she made them, why it was important to her that they be twins? Mm. That's a great question. You know, and it makes me think about um, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, right? And the way that um, John Cameron Mitchell uses really German reunification and Berlin reunification and the myth of the sort of original lovers in, in, Plato's mythology, right, where where 
you know, the original humans were these kind of like double people that got split in half and we're all looking for our, our other missing half. And that's what love is, right? And, and I do think there is something that's really moving in the Mineola twins about this idea of two people who belong to each other, who are uh, opposite sides of the same coin um, and who belong together and who are trying to heal through each other. And I think that America as a concept, as a country, is doing the same thing. I mean, we're in a time where, you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum, right? We're so divided as a country, red versus blue, and yet we are one nation, one one national psyche that is, you know, kind of trying to find a way to reintegrate. And I think some of that is at play in creating this story about a pair of twins. Yeah, it was super fascinating, too, because like the offspring both go like the opposite way. Right. <laughs> you know, and I, and I just thought that like like that is being played out in America over the decades over and over and over again, I'm sure. Totally. Yes. Now, uh, mm-hmm. um, so obviously we weren't doing this live mm-hmm. and we weren't doing this as an audio play. We were, you, you know, you did this as uh, a kind of hybrid video Zoom thing, um, which is super like uh, Jeanette, you mm-hmm. did an amazing job. You know, um, so how, how, how was it working in this, in this brand new medium that you were kind of creating? Yeah, it was really hard. (laughs) Uh, you know, I think the end result is really cool. Um, and I am looking forward to being live again. So we don't have to work this way again because the making of it was, was, um, just had added layers of complexity to it. What we did was we sent, um, a camera on a tripod, about five lights on stands, a green screen, about two boxes of hand props, you know, half a rack of costumes and all of those wigs to each actor's home. And, um, and we, and then Jeanette, through the magic of video and something called open broadcast systems, um, sure. OBS, them, yeah. OBS, right. Put them in these shared backgrounds so that it looked like they were in the same location. Um, and then we had all sorts of inspired silliness as we figured out how to make it look like two actors are, you know, making out with each other. Uh, even though what they're really doing is just, you know, kissing air right at the edge of their <laughs> Zoom screen. And the other person is kissing air right at the edge of their Zoom screen. Um, you know, but we found a way to, to... And I think part of the fun of it is that, you know, the audience knows that's what's happening, of course, right? Like, it's not like they think that we're actually right. in, you know, on a set, on a stage together. So there's some fun in knowing that they're not in the same place and watching their avatars kiss each other or, you know, all of these scenes where someone has to hand someone else a prop and, you know, which meant that we had to double all the props so that the same envelope is in, you know, Jen Lanier's house as in Blake Stone's house. And then when they hand it to each other, they're sort of handing it below camera and they're picking it up below camera and bringing it up into the frame. Um, And it's totally ridiculous, but there's something kind of fun about that. So, so we found a way to have to be inventive with it. And I think it's surprisingly successful, um, even if the making of it was, you know, uh, more stressful than we had hoped. Right. Sure. One of the things that really struck me was how well 
the humor carried over despite the medium. Like, uh, if, um, if I hadn't known beforehand, if you just told me, okay, this is the situation, I'd have been like, there's no way they can still get those jokes to land. But I thought the actors did just an amazing job. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with timing and, and just making it work anyway, you know, um, even though it's not video and it's not theater, but they did a really good job of just, you know, keeping the story alive and humming and funny. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And, and, you know, a big part of that, of course, is because they are inspired comedians. I mean, Jen Lanier is one of the funniest people that I know. And, um, and Blake, whose work I knew, but not really in comedies, he found a really broad, um, sort of archetypal two very distinct characters, you know, one who is a, a, a kind of right wing nerd and the other of whom is a kind of gay sort of like hipster, you know, sixties hippie and, and like a little dim witted, you know, both of which hysterically yeah. funny. And then Miriam, of course, you know, I think is just one of the smartest and, um, and funniest actors that I know. Um, so they're all extremely talented. And then what what we did was we they each had a laptop and and often also a um, an iPad that they would position in two places in the room that could act as monitors. So that even though they were acting into the camera, which was separate, they could see each other on through their laptop or iPad, so that they could try and land some of that timing, which only really happens when you're able to look in each other's eyes. Right. Oh my God, Josh, that sounds like a nightmare when you talk about <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. You know, it's a minefield of cords and boxes and stools and, you know, etc. And yeah, and like, you know, I mean, Miriam Schwartz is like, she's almost in every scene, am I right? Or is she she's in every scene? Every single page of that script, yeah. You know, um, which is good. Because cause <laughs> she is very funny, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the whole section about Mauve. Yeah. Uh, just, <laughs> you know, and, and, and like I said, I wasn't even really like expecting to be able to be able to laugh that much. So I was really impressed by the work the actors do and knowing that they had to handle all this other stuff as well. Uh, it's a real testament to the work they put in. Yeah. Um, so what is it that you think? Because I was surprised also at how timely mm. this play seemed. You know, um, I don't like. Like, when did it come out? Where, where is it at in her repertoire? She wrote it in the late nineteen nineties, um, right? In uh, around two thousand, in and she workshopped it a lot at the Perseverance Theater in Juneau, Alaska, where Luann Schooler, who many of our audience members will know as the director of new play development at Artist Repertory Theater, was in that first production as the twins, um, and then it had its New York premiere in 2000, 2001, um, at the roundabout in a production that I saw right after I graduated college. Oh, great. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is it that you think it's telling us about today? Well, we continue to, you know, wage our culture wars across women's bodies. I mean, just this week, Arkansas, um, you know, signed into law a total ban on abortion, even in the case of rape or incest, right? The only exception is if the life of the mother is threatened um, and, you know, and, and, and wrote into the text of the law that they are, that they have passed this law because they think that Roe v. Wade and subsequent decisions were misdecided. 
Um, and they are hoping that the Supreme Court will take up this that a case um, based on this law and overturn Roe v. Wade. So, you know, here we are still battling these battles that we've been fighting, you know, that go all the way back to, you know, the suffrage movement in the 1870s, right? We're still fighting these these battles. And I think when we see, you know, figures like um, Ivanka Trump and Kellyanne Conway and... Um, or uh, what's her name, Don Jr.'s um, girlfriend at the Republican National Convention last year, um, Guilfoyle. Her name is escaping me at the moment, but is you know, Kelly, Kelly Guilfoyle, right? You know, these women who are taking up the battle on the side of the patriarchy to regulate um, women's autonomy and women's freedom. Um, you know, that feels weirdly kind of like newly back in the zeitgeist or, or I think about the handmaid's tale, right. And, you know, the, yeah. the Mrs. Waterford character who is in part the architect of um, Gilead. So I think there is something that's been happening in the last four or five years where that image, which is a very, very much like one of the twins Myrna of the woman who has been sort of um, conscripted into this fight against feminism um, feels very current right now again, unfortunately. Absolutely. You know, and it was, and it was, it was interesting. Uh, one of the favorite um, aspects of the play was the way I felt like that that character, she starts out the play as conservative, um, uh, but by the end of the play, maybe I shouldn't talk about the end of the play. Um, but, but it's just like you know how the conservative if it's the, the, the conservative viewpoint and this is any viewpoint but how the conservative viewpoint if held on to strongly enough and, be, and the person becomes uh, indoctrinated enough their position eventually becomes radical yeah you know um, and you know and you know violent action is being taken by this person who considers himself conservative yep you know, and I thought that was uh, a really just a a great study of the of the way uh, things move in America. And I think you know, speaking to what you were saying earlier about pathos and the humanity, I think the other thing that we really feel in that character is her total isolation and lonesomeness. By the end, you know, she has really, in part, I would imagine, because of her deeply held, um, kind of radically conservative beliefs. And the way that she has used that to kind of keep herself from intimate relationships, she really has her work and that's it by the end. And I think you really feel, I feel at least, watching the last couple scenes of the play, um, a real sympathy for what she has done to herself, that Myra, the twin, in part, I think, because she's in a more kind of organic, holistic relationship to herself um, has much more um, sort of open relationships with others and feels much more kind of integrated into the world, frankly, than, than Myrna is. And, you know, another right. sort of pleasure, I think, about being able to do several plays by a writer like we do at Profile is that, you know, I was really noting how there's a there's a, there's a, the last scene in the Mineola twins, there's an echo of the last scene in, in Decent and even in the Baltimore Waltz, which is this kind of grief 
for a relationship that has ended and that can't be reclaimed except right. in the world of the psyche, you know? And, and I think that sense of loss is something that permeates so much of Paula's work, both the tragedies and the comedies. Fantastic. I think, Big Josh Hecht, that is a good place to end this. All right. I want to thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Thank you, Bobby. This was a lot of fun. And that is a wrap for this edition of Satellite Beyond the Page. I want to say thank you to Luann Schooler for coming in and talking a little bit about uh, what making the Mineola Twins was like 25 years ago in Juneau, Alaska. Um, thank you to Jeanette Yu, who was talking about how you make the Mineola Twins happen when there's no stage and no audience in the house and you have to use Zoom, which was really super interesting. And then, of course, I mean... I don't even have to thank Josh. He's he's like the artistic director of this company. I mean, this is like his thing. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, so I will thank... Um, just kidding, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. You know you're the man. Um, but I will thank also Jamie M. Ray, the line producer, Robert A.K. Gagno, the sound engineer, Matt Weens, the composer... Um, and all of this was recorded uh, at Studio de Bermea in Milwaukee... Oregon, which is right on the edge of Portland, Oregon, and all of which exist on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their home along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on, and that is as real as can be. I am Bobby Bermea. Thank you for joining us for Satellite Beyond the Page. Hear more podcasts. Go to profiletheater.org slash on air, where you'll find other episodes of Satellite Beyond the Page, as well as our community podcast, Voices from the Real World. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out.